Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Acts shows us what happens when the gospel takes hold in a community. When the gospel, when the gospel takes hold in a church. Now, we didn't read this today, but after the Apostle Peter's first public presentation of the gospel, in verse 41, it's just before this passage that we read, it says that, that around 3,000 people were added to the number. And then in verse 47, it says, the Lord added to that number daily. So in verse 41, we see an explosion of growth. In verse 47, we see an explosion of growth. There's momentum, there's movement, there's multiplication. These two verses serve almost like bookends. Bookends, and so really when you see growth here and growth here and their bookends, what's in between verses 42 through 46 is intended to show us how that momentum built. How did that movement happen? How did that multiplication happen? Uh, What we see here is that the birth of the church, it happened mainly through, it was marked by conversion. Conversion. People who were being transformed by the gospel personally in their lives. And that led inevitably to a deeper commitment to their lives, to the life of the church. What does that mean? If there's no evidence of a desire to deeply plug into the life of the church for you, in your life, you may not be a Christian. That's what that means. Because all scripture, all scripture says that if you really are a Christian, you're born into God's community. And it's so deep. That, that, that joining with the church is so deep, it's so intimate, Christ calls it his body. You're joined with the body. And so you're gonna pursue four things that we see in this text. One, a transcendent oneness. Two, a practical oneness. Three, a missional oneness. And four, a powerful oneness. Your commitment to the church is transcendent, it's practical, it's missional, and it's powerful. First, we're gonna look at transcendent oneness. What does that mean? Now, you gotta remember, when the apostle Peter, he addressed the crowd in Acts chapter one, it wasn't your typical Jerusalem crowd. This happened, we saw this last week, this happened during the Pentecost. So there were people from all over the world present. And the text says, the text actually says, Jews from every nation under heaven. In other words, it was incredibly diverse. They had very little in common with each other. There was no common language. There was no true common language. There was no true common culture. There was no true common class, for that matter. And yet, here they are, in each other's homes. This explosion is taking place. They're in each other's homes every night, worshiping, breaking bread. Now, think about this. Today, we live in, perhaps, the most fragmented society in the United States that we've probably seen since the 1960s. And yet, 
what they had then, society, probably had more in common among those in the United States back then than what you see here in this passage. And yet here, look at the warmth. Look at the, the, the conviction and the warmth, the life. There's oneness. It was transcendent. On one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive faith in the world because it's, it claims that Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God, to actually have a personal relationship with God, to know God. And yet, on the other hand, Christianity is the most inclusive faith, the most diverse faith, because anyone, if you believe, anyone can know God. Anyone can have a personal relationship with God. Religion says, I need to obey, I need to work, I need to strive to gain God's favor. I need to strive to gain God's favor, enjoy the favor of other people, then I will be acceptable, then I will be approved, then I can succeed. But if that's the case, religion will always favor people who perform well. It will always favor people who have knowledge. It will always favor people who are educated, people who may have wealth and status, and that that usually leads to clusters, people coming together on the basis of wealth and status and knowledge and education. You see that? Maybe even culture. But the gospel shows us that it's not about your past. It's about Jesus' past. It's not about your record. It's about Jesus' record. It's not about your works or what you accomplished, but Jesus' works and what he accomplished on the cross. So if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then on one hand, you know you are deeply, deeply sinful. You are deeply sinful, and that's going to humble you. And yet, on the other hand, you know that Christ has defeated death. He has defeated sin. And so you're redeemable, and you are redeemed. And so if you're really humbled by the gospel, and if you're really redeemed by the gospel, then you know, gosh, you say, how in the world am I here today? How did I get here? You know then that anyone can be redeemed. Anyone can be renewed. You celebrate the power of Christ working to save anyone. And so a real Christian, real Christian community is characterized by a genuine oneness that transcends all human barriers to community. Here's a question for you. Do you practice today, do you practice intimacy with people who are very different from you, whether different from your background, different from your understanding of church before, your life in a, in a regular basis. I used to hang out with just this type of person, and yet the gospel has now compelled me, moved me towards uh, developing transcendent relationships with other people who are very, very different from me. Are there people in your life because of the gospel that you've become close to, that you never, you before would never would have imagined that you'd be this close, but now you can't imagine life without them? Have you developed that type of relationship with somebody else, that type of oneness with the people outside of yourself? Transcendent oneness. Secondly, there's a practical oneness. What did these people in, in this passage actually do? In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The text says they devoted themselves, they planted the, the truth deeply into their lives, into their hearts. They reflected together. They reflected together as a body. They, were cons they consumed the Bible together. They discussed the Bible together. They digested the Bible together. In other words, God's word was a priority in their lives. But 40, verse 42 also says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, not just to fellowship, not just some social interaction. When we say fellowship today, it's just hanging out. 
It's just some spiritual Christian way of saying, we're just hanging out like anybody else in the world. That's not what they were doing. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. In other words, they were committed. They were committed to oneness. They were working out. They worked at oneness together as a body. That's how you become a God, body. That means they took the time. They spent energy. They were intentional in building a climate of grace in their community. There are people here in this room right now who are using the church in a sense. It's sacrilegious. They're using the church primarily to fulfill their own social needs, to fulfill or to relieve yourself of loneliness. It's like stopping a meal at an appetizer, and you're trying to fill yourself with that. And as a result, you're so disappointed. Why? Because the church wasn't designed for that. The church wasn't built for that. But if you come to devote yourself to God's word, the apostles' teaching, and to oneness in Christ, that being your one common bond, you can become a part of an even greater bond than you ever even knew existed, that you ever even knew was available to you. Here in this passage, you see people coming from all over the world, all over the world. And what you see is that um, There's no real common worldly bond drawing them together. They had to work at oneness. They had to weave oneness. They had to weave the truths of the gospel into their lives so that oneness can actually happen because it was a spiritual bond that brought them new life. That's the thing that brought them together. What does that mean? They were committed to not give up on one another. They were intentionally putting aside their differences Differences that could potentially damage one another. They surrendered. They surrendered things that their view of what community should be. They called out things that each person wanted in a community, but only for selfish reasons. Why? So that, the, so that gospel oneness could take hold. In verse 43, it says that as they were doing that, they sensed God's presence. They sensed his power, and they sensed it together. They, they experienced that together. In verse 44, they were all together. They had everything in common. In other words, the Holy Spirit moved them into building not just another uh, community in the community, but they were building a whole new society, a whole new humanity altogether, an alternate society in the society. And it was powerful, and it was attractive because they had different values in the rest of the world. And so while the rest of the world was hoarding wealth, in verse 45, they were sacrificially generous to to bear each other's burdens. How did you know that they were sacrificial? It says that they sold their possessions and goods, in verse 45. In the Greek, these are two different words. They sold their goods. These are things that you have, just material things that you have that sustain your life, but but they also sold their possessions. These implied things that you valued. They were selling family, family heirlooms, things that they held close that were of value. They were selling, they were, I mean, it's the equivalent. They were getting rid of their engagement rings so they can help other people. They were getting rid of things that they valued deeply to serve one another. The early church, they didn't give out of surplus. They gave out of sacrifice. They gave till it hurt. 
And so one, they worked at oneness. In a world today where we are hoarding wealth more than ever, we are centralizing wealth more than ever, they worked at oneness and it led them towards generosity, towards incredible acts of sacrifice and generosity. Next, in verse 42, the Greek doesn't say they just, bro- they just broke bread and prayed. You see that later on in the text. It says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In other words, they were committed to communion. We're going to do that today. They were committed to communion regularly. They were committed to worshiping together. Worship was communal, and worship had order. And through it, verse 42, they heard God's word. They were committed, devoted to the apostles' teaching. And verse 43, they shared in a common awe of God. And one more thing. In verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. But verse 46, it says they broke bread in their homes. So they were committed to the breaking of bread, and it led to verse 46, they broke bread in their homes. What does that mean? On one hand, worship is a public, communal experience. But on the other hand, it's not true worship if it doesn't get into your house. It doesn't get into your person, your private, intimate life with your friends. In your, into your home, there was a public faith. That's worship. There was a private application of faith. Prayer, breaking bread with one another. And it was all sacrificial. You know why it was sacrificial? Apart from the fact they just gave up their, their valuable items, the very act of breaking bread alone was costly because in ancient times, food was scarce. You didn't just do that. There was no wawa. You just go and, and, and buy bread to break. Food was scarce. It was costly. It was sacrificial. This is the end of self-reliance. This is the end of selfishness. This is the end of stinginess. This is the end of snobbishness. It transcended class and socioeconomic status. You see that? And, and in what ways is your faith being practically applied? In what ways is your faith in Jesus Christ practically applied in a way that it is actually costing you? Or are you living it out cheap? Thirdly, it was missional. It was a missional oneness. In verse 42 to 43, it's just another way of saying that the apostles taught, the apostles led, is really the birth of the New Testament. And as a result, in verses 44 to 45, there was a daily application of oneness that made them generous. And daily, God added to the number. They were so generous in a world that's hoarding wealth. They were, that there wasn't a single Christian that was, that was poor or needy in a sense. So widows and orphans, anybody who fought, they flocked to the church as a result. Today, we have a powerless church in the world that's bickering over all sorts of stuff. We have a powerless church in our city that's just bickering over all sorts of stuff led by a powerless faith that says, I need to build my own wealth before I give. I need to build my own family, build my own career first, build my own family first, build my own house first. And then we start to, and then we complain about why there's no renewal in our lives. Why did the Lord add daily to the number? It's because they were committed to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Together, these things were their priority. You need both, you see. If you have teaching, 
without fellowship, it's like having light without heat. And so you're going to have a very cold faith, a very powerless faith, not very warm. But if you're working towards oneness, and so you're committed to the fellowship, it's all about church. It's all about just, just being committed to the church without devoting yourself to God's word, which is the fuel of faith, really. It's like having heat then, warmth, without any direction, which ultimately ends up and everybody ends up cold. There's no direction. It's not, it's not directed anywhere. It's, it's just going to disperse, and you end up burning out, or you end up becoming very, very tired. It's aimless. You need both. But when you have both, you become so attractive as a community, and that is powerful. People flock to the church. People pour into the church. That means that you need a real message. That's the truth. That's the apostles' teaching. You need real people. That is the fellowship, oneness, light, and heat. Christianity is a personal, a deeply personal experience of a rational truth. On one hand, it's a personal experience. There's warmth, there's heat. On the other hand, it's built on rational truth. There's light. You see that? You need both. The real message is the word of God, the word of the apostles, the teaching, and the real people. That's oneness. And that leads to, if you have both of those things, there's a missionality, there's a winsomeness, there's an attractiveness that you're not working towards the attractiveness, you're working towards the teaching and the oneness. It leaves you missionally winsome. That's why the church gathered back then. Why do you gather? Lastly, there's power. It's powerful. In verse 46, text says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And you have to understand, this is in the midst of disease. This is in the midst of war. This is in the midst of persecution. This is in the midst of death and fear and hiding and persecution and and shame and all these kind of things. Christ was, was put to death for these things. And now they're proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see that? Where was the power for that? Because what's the fruit of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship? What's the fruit of meeting in the temple courts? That's worship. And breaking bread, that's fellowship in their homes. In verses 46 to 47, you see that they had glad and sincere hearts to praise God. Does your community in this church make you glad Does your community in this church draw you towards praise and gratitude toward God? Does your community, or how does gospel community, in a sense, how does gospel community give birth to genuine gratitude, a genuine praise? Or is worship just something you do, an obligation? Whenever you see or hear, or experience something beautiful. Our, we're built, the Bible says that we were built to worship. So if your heart is, if you're not worshiping the Father, if you're not worshiping God as King and Lord and Savior of your life, then you're worshiping something else. And so we're designed, we're built towards praise, we're built for worship. So whenever you see or hear or experience something beautiful, your first inclination 
is, is to share it. Why? Because the very act of sharing it with somebody else and seeing it, the experience of seeing somebody else responding to what you find beautiful in your life, to your experience in life, it actually extends and completes your joy. So you're, in a, in a sense, when you experience something beautiful, you complete the act of that beauty by sharing it. We're built that way. That's how we're built. It's why when you, when you watch a great movie, you share it. It completes your joy. When you hear a wonderful song or, or hear some good music, you share it. Because to not do that is to almost inhibit it doesn't complete your joy. It, it, it completes the joy when you share. When you meet somebody remarkable, the first thing you do is you have to share it. That's why Christians have to get together. Why do we get together and worship when you can just do everything online today? Why do we get together? What is this experience of worshiping together? There's a transcendent experience because you were sharing in the experience of praising and worshiping together with one another. That's why we get together. It's why they, devoted, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Christians gather to worship together. They gather to praise together. They gather to strengthen one another in the gospel together because it is the ultimate beauty. And they say, look at the beauty of the gospel and God's work in you, your experience of that person and what they're going through, whether it's in their suffering or even through their sinfulness, to be able to say, I see how God is working in your life. It completes your joy of experiencing Christ and seeing other people experiencing Christ with you. You see that? You, only, you can only do this in the context of community. It's beautiful. But if you look to Jesus primarily as your teacher, and only your teacher, if you look to Jesus primarily as just a leader, or just as an example, you will never see that beauty. It will never burst you into a heart of praise. If you look to Jesus as just a king, if you look to Jesus as a distant God, you may miss that beauty. It will never burst you into praise. But if you look to Jesus as your substitute, as one who, as the high king who came down and died for you, if you look to Jesus and how he loved the church, if you look to Jesus and how uh, he has loved you and it is deeply personal in your life, that makes Jesus the absolute beauty, the most beautiful. You're gonna want to praise you're gonna to want to share in the experience of praise and worship with other people. And that's why we need the church. You're gonna become more devoted to the fellowship. Otherwise, you're only gonna do church on your own terms. You're gonna miss the beauty. You're gonna miss it altogether. The whole reason why you're here. Now I know, as a pastor of, of a lot of millennials and Gen Z and Gen Xers, I know that many of you here have been hurt by the church in the past. Whatever context you've been in the past, wherever you've been, there's been hurt that you've experienced. And so what you're doing is you're holding that devotion ransom 
on your own terms. And what you're saying is, I am not gonna plug in unless this church meets this criteria or that criteria, or I will, I will hold this devotion ransom because I dislike this person or I dislike that person. This person is ugly to me. That person is ugly to me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold back my devotion. I'm gonna hold a ransom when you should be plugging into the church all the more into the life of the church because of the absolute beauty of Jesus. It is not say anything about that person. It says a lot about you how you view the church and how you view your devotion to Christ. Why is Jesus beautiful? Look to Jesus on the night he was betrayed. You know what he did? I mean, think about it. The night, I mean, the night before you know you're going to die, whatever you do is going to be the most important thing in your life. It is going to be your priority. You know what Jesus did? He was teaching. He was teaching. He gathered his disciples. He ate with them. He was breaking bread with them. You know what he did? He gave them the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And you know what he was teaching them? About what it means to be the fellowship. He was praying for them. John chapter 17, before on the night he was betrayed, I mean, it was what they call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Knowing that he would be betrayed by his friends, he was praying for the disciples. He was praying for Christians around the world, you, myself, his church, his bride, his people, that we would become one. He was practicing oneness. He was worshiping with his disciples. That was his priority, and yet he would be betrayed by his friends. He would be rejected by his friends. He would be rejected by the religious. He would be rejected by the rulers of the, of the state. And he was placed on a cross The ultimate sign of rejection, he was, in a sense, disqualified. Why? So that we would be qualified and we would be brought together. You see that? And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus Christ, he died alone. He suffered alone. He was totally alone. The Father himself had rejected him and abandoned him. Jesus Christ wants complete oneness with the Father. And do you know, the night, that night, he prayed for the oneness of his disciples, the oneness of his church. Father, let them be one as you and I are one, he said. That was the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And yet on the cross, the Father, turning his face from his son, distanced himself from the son, rejected his son forensically, and there, The wrath of God poured out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. He was abandoned by his friends, abandoned by society, abandoned by the rulers, abandoned by the religious, abandoned by the Father. And he suffered loss. He suffered the loss of intimacy with his people, intimacy with the Father. He lost oneness with the Father, the ultimate oneness with the Father. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we would be accepted. Jesus Christ lost oneness with the Father so that we would have ultimate reconciliation oneness with the Father. And that makes it possible then for us to have oneness with ourselves, with one another. All the while, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know? He was actually fulfilling Psalm chapter 22. You know what that means? That even as he was suffering, even as he was dying, Jesus was reciting a psalm. He was worshiping on the cross. He was devoted to God's truth, to his teaching. He was applying it practically into his life. 
Even as he was suffering, even as there was darkness, the heaviest darkness, even we say it feels as if God abandoned me. For Jesus, God abandoned him. He wasn't breaking bread with the Father. You know why? Because he was the bread of life that was broken for you. And yet he was still praying for his people. Father, forgive them, he said. Father, forgive them. He was praying for his church, even on the cross. In a sense, because he gave up his life, the cross was the greatest act of sacrifice and the greatest act of generosity. His faith and trust in the Father, his devotion to the fellowship, to his people, to his bride, the body, it led him to an incredible, the most incredible, the most remarkable, the ultimate act of sacrifice and generosity on the cross, all the while the Father distancing himself from the Son. Jesus Christ united himself with his church, his bride. He was devoted to the fellowship. He took our place so that we would take his place, union. And when you see Jesus Christ devoting himself to the word, devoting himself to the Father, devoting himself to the fellowship, which means he's devoting himself to you, practicing the ultimate act of generosity and sacrifice for you, losing oneness with the Father for you so that you can experience the ultimate oneness, then you will see the absolute beauty of Jesus. It's going to lead you. How can it not burst you into worship? and praise. How then can we be indifferent to people around us who are different? How then can we be indifferent towards people whom we dislike, even in the church? Knowing that Christ, who is worlds apart, in terms of righteousness and holiness. They don't live holy, they don't live right, they don't live the way I would wanna live. Knowing that the high king came down for you because of his love and forgave you because of his compassion. How can you be indifferent to people who are not like you? The beauty of Jesus drives and compels the breaking of all human barriers to oneness. And what it does is when you are committed to that, it leaves you with a joy that you would never be able to achieve or accomplish on your own. A gratitude that you will never be able to have in the heart. A worship and a praise that goes beyond self-worship and selfishness and self-reliance. And you become more reliant, more dependent, the church becomes more than just a loose aggregation of people. It becomes a body. As we gather at the table, let's gather and gaze again, just once again. As we taste of the goodness of God, let's gather and gaze at the beauty of the Father, the beauty of Christ in praise. Let's pray together.